Does everybody have lesson 35? Uh, we're gonna, we didn't even start this as usual. Uh, we get sidetracked and we have good discussions. So we didn't even get to this, but we're in the last part of the Lord's Prayer. Uh, this is the high priestly prayer of Jesus Christ, our Savior, as He prays the day before, a uh, few hours before He goes to the cross. He prays for Himself in the first section. He prays for His disciples in the second section. And then today we're going to look at Him praying for us, those of us who will believe in Him 2,000 years later. So He prays for us. And so we're going to label this, obviously, He prays for all believers. So we're in chapter 17, and we're going to go through 20 through 26. And I'm particularly going to emphasize uh, a couple of of these... uh, couple of these uh, wonderful verses. Let me read this, and then we're going to look at some of the truths that we glean from these. And I purposely left the uh, the outlines pretty vague, so you can write and add some things. Uh, my outlines are pretty uh, pretty vague and not very detailed sometimes. But let's look at uh, chapter 17 of John, verse 20 through 26. I do not pray for these alone but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one, as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. And the glory which you gave me, I have given them, that they may be one just as we are. I in them, you in me, that they may be made perfect in one, that the world may know that you sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which you have given me, For you love me before the foundation of the world, O righteous Father. The world has not known you, but I have known you. And these have known that you sent me. And I have declared to them your name. And I will declare it, that the love with which you love me may be in them, and I in them. Mind-blowing verses. I would counsel you to read these, read these, read these. When you get into a pity party, when you get into despair, when you get into discouragement, when you are sick, when you are lonely, when you are depressed, whatever you're going through, whatever emotional mood that is typical of all of us, read these verses and remember that you have a Savior who interceded for you 2,000 years ago intercedes for you today that you would come to the knowledge of Him, that you would realize how much the Father loves you and how much He loves you and how He prayed that you would be with Him where He is. And if you don't sense that love hug from the Holy Spirit as you read that, read it again. Ask Him to encourage you with His Spirit, and help you to understand the, the imminence of this and the, and the uh, compassion of this. So let's just real look at this. Jesus prays for us. We are the believers who will believe in Him, and this is the 
And we are the answer to this prayer. If you are in Christ today, you are an answer to this prayer. As Jesus prayed for those who would believe from the words, from the foundation, we talked about this last week, from the foundation of the apostles and the disciples, their words as they divided and went out and were and were persecuted and suffered, all of them were killed, martyred, except for John the, the apostle. As we are built upon the foundation, Jesus is a chief cornerstone, he's a foundation stone. And what he's done, he takes people, he uses them, as David Gibson said, he used these apostles, and they're going to be foundational to the building up of this church, his body, and that's who we are. So Jesus is going to pray for us. I've used the outline MacArthur gave just as a, as a, as a way to keep this structured. Uh, he, he labels part one, he prays for oneness. He prays for the oneness of, of us. That's going to be who we are. And then he's going to pray that we be with him where he is. He's going to pray for our unity and he's going to pray for our mutual love. So I look at this. I want to look at, first of all, we notice that Jesus redirects his prayer from the disciples who is with then at that time due to the immediacy and the um, and the necessity. He's praying for them because he knows they're about to suffer, they're about to be scattered, they're about to be persecuted. So he prays for them. Remember, he prayed that he wouldn't, that, that, uh, that uh, they would stay in the world, that they wouldn't be taken out of the world. And we said the reason for that was why. Why did he pray that the disciples wouldn't be taken out of the world? Because we have a purpose, right? And we have a mission. And that mission is to share the gospel, share the love of Christ. And so he has chosen to use vessels like us, like you and I, weak vessels. He's chosen to make us vessels of honor. And he's chosen to, through us, to disseminate his gospel and his truth. He could have done it a different way, a better way in our minds, perhaps, that he would use weak vessels. But he uses us so we understand it's all by him and it's from him and it's to him. And he has chosen to use weak people like us for his glory. So he's, he's, he's praised us for his disciples. Now he transitions to us, future believers. Notice what he says. I don't pray for just my disciples now in the present, but I pray for those who will believe. So under the category of oneness, he, 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 he differentiates and he says, this, I'm praying for a people who will believe. You notice that he didn't say might. He didn't say could. He didn't say, uh, if they choose to. He doesn't say, uh, if they will to. He says they will believe. We call this in Scripture, and this is going to dovetail what he's been saying the whole time throughout the book of John. And you can just refer back to John 6. There's some similar verbiage that he's used throughout this whole book. I just chose a couple of verses so as not to bog down too much. 
But this is similar verbiage he used in John 6. Look at John 6:37. The reason why Christ came is to die for the people that his Father had given him. And it's very clear here. And he says, look at these, these words, verse 37, chapter 6. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. For I have come from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that all he has given me, I will lose nothing, but should raise it up in the last day. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him will have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. So Jesus comes for a particular purpose. He comes to die for those the Father had given him, and all the Father had given him will come to him. He bats 100. No losses. No discouragement. They will come. He changes our wills, our desires, and He draws us, and we come voluntarily because He changes us. It's His work, His grace. They will believe. Not could, not might, if they choose to, not if they will to, not if they believe or don't believe. God says they will believe because I'm drawn into myself. Same verbiage in John chapter 10. Remember when he's talking about the sheep, and the, and the sheep hear my voice, and they will come to me. Look what he says in John 10, 15, and 16. Nothing changes. As the Father knows me, I know the Father, and I lay my life down for who? The sheep. And other sheep I have which are not of this fold, that means the Gentiles. The peoples, if you want to make fun of the people's name, the peoples in Hebrew is Gentiles. So we're bringing in the peoples. Here we go. And lay down my life and other sheep I have which are not of this fold, them I also must bring. And they what? Will hear my voice. And there will be one flock. We have Jew and Gentiles, his people whom he's drawn to himself. And we become one people, a people that he's drawn to himself. So all this is similar. It's, it goes throughout the whole book of John. Uh, and we see that culminated in his prayer. So he says they will believe. We call this, in this church, this has been going, this is, this doctrine has been from the, from the beginning of Genesis. We call this, we call this, we separate this out and we call this doctrines of grace. And we say that underneath there, there's a bunch of these. I'm not going to spend time through these. But this is called unconditional election. And this is called, and because of unconditional election, we have irresistible grace. And so Jesus, as He prays for His people, that they will come to Him, they will believe... God has chosen a people. He's chosen to do that out of the foreknowledge of His own pleasure, of His own will. He didn't look in the future and say, Don is going to believe in me, so I'm going to pick him to be on my team. No, He chose me, and so I am on His team. He is the salvation giver, and it's of Him. And so we say there's this irresistible grace. There is a general call... Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. There's a general call to all men. 
irresistible, iris, uh, irrespective of nationalities, uh, gender, uh, wealth, economic status. He, he calls to all men, come unto me. That is an outward call to all men. And that call is resistible. We know that men resist him every day. He has a declarative will. He wills that men come to him, but men are moral free agents and they resist the outward call. But we still give the outward call to all men because we don't know those who are called with an inward call of the Holy Spirit and that inward call is not resistible. He will draw us and we will come to Him. And so he prays for those believers who will count, who will believe. He calls for those believers whom he has died for, and they will come into the sheepfold, okay? Does everybody understand that? He's praying for those who will believe. Not might, not could, not if they want to, not if they will to. And so we see that it's unconditional, not based upon anything he sees in us, because he sees dead men incapable of anything. But he in his mercy and his grace says, I'm going to choose Becky Peoples. And Becky Peoples will tell you, it wasn't anything he saw in her or Gary. Believe me, Gary. huh? Believe me, me. Believe Ron over there. Is there anything in Ron's life that God would say, wow, i got to have that guy on my team? Absolutely not. So he calls us, his grace is irresistible, and we come willingly, not kicking, dragging our feet. He changes our desires, our want-tos, and he draws us to himself, and we are volunteers in the day of his power, it tells us in Psalm. So, so that's the prayer for those who will believe, and it is irresistible, and we come Willingly, thankfully. That is a reason to praise the Lord. And that is what grace is. Unmerited favor to people that He would choose us. It's not that why would He choose us? It's why would He, why, why wouldn't He choose, it's why would He choose anybody? And so He has an inward call of His Spirit to His people, and they come. So He prays that they will believe. Does everybody understand that? I like what the uh, the uh, shorter Westminster Confession says. The, uh, the, the, the shorter catechism in my notes, the shorter catechism of the Westminster Confession sums it up beautifully when it states, effectual calling. When I did... This, uh, this irresistible grace is said to be effectual in that it... Its effect is always realized. So it's effectual as opposed to ineffectual. The, the inward call is always effectual. 100% of the time. So we see here, we see this in this notes. Effectual calling is the work of God's Spirit, whereby convincing us of our sin and our misery, He enlightens, the Spirit enlightens our minds and the knowledge of Christ. He renews our wills and He persuades us and He enables us to embrace Jesus Christ that's been offered to us in the good news of the gospel. So Jesus is praying for those, for people like you and me, that they will believe. And if you have believed, it is because you are one of His. 
And He's given you eyes to see and ears to hear. And He's given you faith to apprehend and trust Him. And we rejoice in that. And we call all men to do the same thing because we do not know who are His and whose may not be His. But we preach the gospel to everybody, anytime, every time. Right? Because He is the one that does it, not us. And if you get in your heart saying, well, that guy's not one. I'm not going to share the gospel with him. I'm not going to invite him in my church. You do not get it. You do not understand free grace. He doesn't look at the outside. If he would have, you would have saw, saw me for those years and you would have said, that guy is a reprobate. He obviously will never be saved. But God was gracious to me, right? And gracious to know. Will believe. So he prays for those who will believe. So if you think that you don't have anything to be thankful for, and I know everybody in this group room at this time does as I look around, we need to be a thankful people that God would have caused us to believe, and we did believe, and we see this is we are prayed for and loved two thousand years ago. We were prayed for and loved before the foundation of the world. Terry and I were talking about this at our elder meeting before everybody got there at 5.45 in the morning. And he was saying, Don, I do not know when I pass from death into life for sure. I don't know my birthday, spiritual birthday. And we just rejoiced in that God would call us. And He, when He's ready, He changes us and He moves us. And we don't know when the Spirit... Some of you may know the exact moment. From you were death into life and you're a completely different person like Paul on the road to Damascus. Some of you have, 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 he's worked differently in your life and it's more processional and you may not know the exact time. It's been, maybe it's been a bunch of different steps, but God is in it and he is doing it. And he, when he started it, you may not know when he will finish it, right? So, uh, those of us who believe comments about this. Thoughts about this? Praise the Lord about this? Yes. Uh huh. Yes. Right. Because He effectually calls us, that is that is that would be. There's five doctrines of grace, and the last one. Uh, of the doctrines of rape, because this is true, then this also has to be true, and it's called the perseverance and the preservation of the saints. Long words. He will, we persevere because He's preserved us. We will always finish because He started it. And then this all works together as a, as a system of theology. Because if this isn't true, people that don't believe that we persevere and He will preserve us think that they had something to do with it and that they can choose not to believe whenever they want to, right? And they can fall away and they're worried about falling away. And it's usually because I don't live up to this standard. I don't do this work. I fall into this sin, okay? And so they think they've lost their salvation, but the problem is they think they had something to do with it to begin with. 
And when you understand that God has saved you, He's also going to preserve you. So that's a good comment. That's one of the other doctrines of grace. I should have put them all together, but this is, this is the one that sums it all up. He starts the work. He's going to finish the work. Yes. Quote that for us, Gary. He who began a good work will finish it until the day of Jesus Christ. And so we see it all summed up in many other verses. We can't lose our salvation. We can't be plucked out of the Father's hand. We won't finally fall away. There will be periods in our life when we're not uh, observable as Christian, His followers. We don't imitate Him at times, but we don't finally fall away. We, We don't finally turn if we've been inwardly called, we never finally fall away because He holds on to us. Any other comments on that? A great doctrine. Rest in it. Trust it. He is your salvation. He will hold on to you. It's not an emotion that you feel. I love the song, Casting Crowns. It's not in how I feel, but what your Word reveals. I'm not holding on to you. You're holding on to me. And all of us in this room have felt times like... I've lost a grip. And you may have been taught as a young person, I've lost a grip. But he hasn't. He hasn't. Okay? He holds on to us. And he finishes the work. If that wasn't good enough, notice he says, they will believe in me through their word. He has ordained in his sovereign goodness. He has ordained the means by which this is accomplished, and that means is and always will be His Word. And He takes His Word, which He has written, it's His mind, it's His will, it's His desire, it's who He is. This is the revelation of who God is to us as people, and He takes that Word, and He illumines that Word, and He empowers that Word, and that Word is given life, By the Holy Spirit. And that is the means by which we are saved. Okay? He uses His Word to draw us to Himself. He uses the Word. The Word teaches us that we're sinners. The Word teaches us that we fall short of His glory. The Word teaches us that we cannot have access to Him. But the Word says, I have provided a Savior, my Son. And through His work on the cross, through His redemption, through His shed blood, we now can be reconciled to the Godhead. And so He uses the means, and the means is His Word, and He energizes the Word with His Spirit, and He creates life in us through the Word, which is living. And so verses, we're familiar with these verses. Let me reiterate them again. Hebrews 4.12. Everybody should commit these to memory. And if you have trouble memorizing, welcome to the old man's club. For the Word of God is living, powerful, sharper than a two-edged sword. It, it pierces to the division and the soul and the spirit of the joints and the marrow. And it dis, it's a discerner of our thoughts and the intents of our heart. And no creature is hidden from its sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of Him who must must give account. So He takes His Word, 
And He penetrates our thoughts and our attitudes and our depravity of our heart and our dead soul and He makes it alive. And He makes us aware of who He is, our accountability to Him, our inability before Him, and He changes us through His words. That's Hebrews 4.12. We know that, uh, we know this verse, of course, 2 Timothy 3.16. We know that, that all Scripture is inspired and given by inspiration of God. I'll let you, I'm going to read this to you, 2 Timothy 3.16. We're aware of these verses. It's given by inspiration of God and it's valuable for, for doctrine, for teaching, for reproof. It tells us about our nature. It convicts us. It corrects us. It instructs us in righteousness that the men of God, that those who are, have been have been open to the Word by His Spirit that we may be complete and thoroughly equipped for every good work. So that's what He takes. The means is the Word. Uh, and then He's used this throughout the whole book of John. And I'll just uh, look back real quick. I, I don't want to, uh, I want to leave time for what I really want to focus on. Uh, just look at some verses. Jesus is always just going backwards from where we are. Look at 15.7. The importance of the Word, the means of the Word. There's no shortcuts in the spiritual life. He means for us to hide this, to meditate on this. He means us to cherish this Word, to be changed by this Word. We believe in this church that this Word transforms us and conforms us to who Jesus is. So He's always used this methodology 15.7, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you will and it will be done. But my by my Father is glorified through this that you bear fruit. And so we see that. And if you just keep turning backwards, 14, 23 and 24. If anyone loves me, he'll keep my word and my Father will love him and we will come to him. And make our home with Him. We'll talk about mutual indwelling here in a second. He who does not love me doesn't keep my words. So the means is the Word. And the evidence that we are His, if we are obedient to the Word, if our lives are characterized by that obedience. None of us are perfect. We all fall short, obviously. We sin. Sin. We sin. It remains in us, but it doesn't reign in us. As I said last Last week, then 12, if you're just going backwards, I'll just go one more time here. Uh, Verse 47, chapter 12, if anyone hears my words and doesn't believe, I don't judge him, for I didn't come to judge the world the first time, but to save the world. He who rejects me and doesn't receive my words has that which judges him, and the word is going to judge him. The word that I've spoken will judge him in the last day. So the means is the word, and the word will be the arbiter and the judge of if we are his or not in accordance to our how we submitted to him and his word so we see the means is the word that we will believe and if i were to ask you you could tell me how the word god used the word to convict you either through a pastor as he spoke the word or through you as you read the word he energized the words and that were the means by which you came to him Comments or questions about that one? I want to look at these that are a little more difficult to understand. I'll see if I can use a Keith word, unpack them for you. Uh, Let's look at uh, uh, this amazing thought. 
21. That they all may be one. As you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me, and the glory which you gave me, I have given them. Wow. Explosion of the brain. The glory that I have, you've given me, I have given them. Who's the them? Us. The believers. Now I want to, first of all, I want to look back at this. Uh, everybody got this? It's in the notes anyway. Uh, hope you got that. Can't read it anyway. Blah, blah, blah. Let's look at this oneness. He says, I pray that they will be one as you are in me and I'm in you. So we're going to be one like the Father and the Son. What does that mean? Oneness. And you need to be able to spell oneness before you write it on the board. Oneness. Oneness. We are to be one just like the Father, Father and the Son. And so we need to find out how are they one. They are one in purpose. And so we, as followers of Jesus Christ and a part of the body, we need to be one in purpose. What is the purpose of the unity of the Father and the Son? I've already talked about it, but they are one in purpose. What is their purpose? Have I just talked about it? Pardon me? I didn't hear you. They are purposed together to glorify themselves. We talked about this. When Jesus prayed for him at the start of this chapter, he says, glorify me that I may glorify you. Remember we talked about this in great detail. The Father is glorified in that he chose a peace for himself. Jesus is glorified that he died for those people and those people come to him. So they themselves glorify themselves. And we said that what they do and, and the chief end of man is to glorify God and the purpose of it all is to elicit... Is that spelled correctly, son? One L. The purpose... Of their life, the purpose of what they did and our role is so that we will elicit worship from our creatures. So the purpose of the Father and the Son together in the salvation and the work of, of what they have accomplished is that man worships, adores, reveres, yields to, submits to, acknowledges dependent upon God. And so we see in salvation of men, in the reconciliation of men, in the transformation of men, the only explanation is God, and that within us the Creator elicits worship and awe. And we go, they did it, they accomplished it. And so we, as His children, we then... With the same oneness they had, we now have a purpose, or we have, let me say this, we have a great task. 
And that task is defined, if I look at it, and the glory which you gave me, I have given them. Have you ever wonder what that means? The glory, the glory that you gave me, I have given them. Let's camp out on this, maybe for a good time. He says, the glory that you've given me, I have, I have given them. Jesus has given us a glory. Boy, oh boy, it's bad being me. The glory I have given them. What in the world? And this is going to be a task. This is the reason we're on this planet. This is why we don't get taken out of the world. Because we have a task, and that is to glorify Jesus Christ, just as Jesus Christ glorified His Father. So let's think about the glory I have given them. What is the glory, the task? That task is to elicit worship in ourselves and in other people. What task has He given us? I want you to camp out in 2 Corinthians for a second. So Jesus says, the glory you've given me, I've given them. So we have a task. The purpose of that task is to elicit worship in ourselves and in the world. Okay? And so we're going to do that because we're going to do the same thing that Jesus did to His Father. He elicited worship to the Father because of what He accomplished on the earth. And He's given us a task. And that task is to do the same thing. To glorify God in our lives. And to elicit worship and reverence in people, in the world, in in which we live. And that's why we're here on this planet. So He's given us a task, and that task is to glorify them. Let's just look at 2 Corinthians. And I want us to open up to 2 Corinthians. I have a few of these, and I just want you to think about these. 2 Corinthians. We're all in 2 Corinthians here. First verse I want us to look at is 1, 4, and 9. Then I want us to look at chapter 2. Verse 14, there may be some uh, ancillary verses on each side of these. Then we got 2 Corinthians, same thing. We've got 3, 18, and we've got, uh, uh, we've got, uh, da, 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 da. we've got chapter 4, verse 6, 14, and 17. We've got chapter 5, 18, and 20. We've got chapter 9, Verse 10. Now, these are just some tasks that we've been given that are going to glorify Christ. And He's praying that the glory I had with the Father, I've given them. So we have a task. Turn to 2 Corinthians 1, 4, and 9. Let's look at that. And tell me what one of our tasks is that God has given us to glorify Himself and His Son, Jesus Christ. Second. Corinthians 1.4. Let's start at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. Here's our task. Who comforts us in our tribulation. Here we go. Why do we have tribulation? That we may be able to comfort those who are in trouble with the comfort which we ourselves are comforted by. So we have a task, that task glorifies God, and, and, it, and it says our, our trouble, the purpose of our trouble is so that we will learn 
to comfort others with the comfort we received when we were when we were distressed. So when we lose a spouse, when we lose a grandchild, when we lose children, when we lose jobs, when we whatever, fill in the blank, the purpose of that is to comfort others with the comfort in which God comforted us when it happened to us. So you look back in your life, whatever it is, however He comforted you through it, you're to turn around and comfort people the same way. And everybody in here can say they've done that. Right? We recently were able to comfort Sister Rachel in the passing of her mother. The purpose of that was to comfort her, yes, but the purpose of that said, wow, we got to glorify God. And everybody who saw the 21 of us who were there said that, wow. Right? And that's the purpose of that. Silly, one ex, Carolyn, who sits right here dying of liver disease, said, wow, when we prayed for her, when a bunch of you guys went and helped her move, that comforted her, and that made her say, wow. Okay? When Fran has lungs that she can't breathe, and we pray for her and encourage her, she says, wow, and she understands the wow comes from Him, right? That is one of the tasks we have as God's children When we're in trouble, when we suffer, we comfort others. When we have wayward children, we see our wayward children brought to the Lord. If that happens in your life, you're to encourage those who have wayward children. Because God is able to bring your child to because He brought back one of ours, right? You everybody understand that one? Let's move right along. Let's look at this next one. 2 Corinthians 1, 4 and 9. Yes, Paul's talking about all of his suffering. You want to read about his suffering? You can read about it in in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. We're not going to go through it now, but it's a long list. Yes, verse 9. Yes, we had the sentence of death in ourselves. Here we go. Why did Paul go through the shipwrecks and the stonings and, and and the nakedness and the peril and the shipwrecks? And I could go on and on, beaten with the cat of nine tails 39 times, multiple times. Why did he do that? Why, why, why? So we should not trust in ourselves, but in God, who raises the dead, who delivers us from a great death, and will just continue to deliver us, and whom we trust that he will still deliver us. So why did Paul go through everything? So that we wouldn't trust in ourselves... We don't trust ourselves and we depend on Him because He's been faithful to deliver us. And it says He does deliver us future, present, future. We, He did deliver us, He does deliver us, and He will deliver us. That's why we go through the troubles and that builds up confidence in Him, dependence on us, and we go, wow. We elicit worship and trust Him. That is what Jesus is praying, that the same glory He had, He's given to us, and it is our privilege and our task to do that. Everybody 
Questions, comments about that? It just gets getting better. Chapter 2, verse 14. Have you thought about this? Think about a flower. Think about a... Think about if you've got some incense burning in your house or you've got a, a candle that burns in your house and that aroma. One of the ways we glorify Jesus Christ is that we diffuse aroma to this lost, dying world. Look at 2.14. Thanks be to God who leads us to triumph in Christ. Look at this. Through us, unimaginable that He would use us. Through us. Chew on that a while. Through us, He diffuses the fragrance of His knowledge in every place. For we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. Dual effect. He uses us to glorify Himself in those who are being saved. And he also, we also have an effect on lost people. You ever thought about that? If we are diffusing Him rightly, for those who are perishing to the one, He is the aroma of death leading to death, and to the other, the aroma of life leading to life. And who is sufficient for these things? For we are not peddling the Word of God, but as of sincerity, but as from God, we speak in the sight of God in Christ." You are a diffuser of His fragrance. And it's going to affect, it's going to encourage believers. And it's going to be a peculiar smell to non-believers. And that peculiar smell may... What, what can that peculiar smell do to non-believers? Do two things. What can it do? Convict them? Or what? Harden their hearts. Death leading into death. When Jesus spoke the words of life, He diffused that fragrance to His people. They came, they repented, they called on His name. And what was the, and what was the effect to the unbelievers? They got harder and harder in heart, and they hated Him and hated Him more. You've all been there, done that, right? You share the truth with a co-worker. You share love to people. Either draws them to himself. It asks them, what is this they have that I don't have? Gives you opportunity. Or they say, you're a hypocrite. You're a fool. I don't want nothing to do with what you're peddling. We've all had that happen. That is the glory I've given us, his children. We have that task and purpose to diffuse His fragrance. I love that. Next time you put plug in a thing in your, uh, in your socket, think about that, diffusing the fragrance, and that's what we're supposed to do. Uh, that's what we're supposed to do. Now we've got uh, 3.18. Look at this. But we all, that's us, His children, believers with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. Wow. Next time you look in the mirror, 
Think on this verse. You are to be a light reflector of Christ to people. And the only thing I can think of, and it's just I'm, I'm an imbecile and I don't have the ability. I think of Moses when he comes down off the mountain. What did they notice about Moses? His face shone. It illuminated. Have you ever been around a godly older man and a godly older woman? And being around them, you just go, wow. That person has lived their life in obedience to the Lord. Been there, done? Have you seen those folks? I used to have a, a, a pa- uh, not a pastor, but a, a music leader when we went to First Baptist in Euless. And he was around, you were just around him and he just oozed the Holy Spirit. I mean, have you ever been around somebody like that? And that is Him glorifying Christ and how God uses Him to diffuse that. Okay? And just think about that. And, and we all want to be that person that people think, wow, I want to be, I want to be like Christ has made Him to be. You don't want to be the bitter old woman that people think, or, or old man that people think, Wow, he's been saved for 50 years and that's the way he is. And you know people like that too. You ever been around, if you have a mom or a dad or died or a grandpa or grandpa, they died well. They died, uh, they died and they finished well and you could just see the joy in their face when they died. That's the final work. That's the final thing we want to teach our kids and our grandchildren to die well, right? And to live well, but to die well. I want Austin to see me die and I want him to think, Wow, he died well, okay? And that's what we all, that should be our all goal. That's our purpose, right? That's the glory he's given us, the task he's given us, to diffuse his fragrance. You want to say something? You look like you want to say something, Gary. Good. Excellent. Four, six. We just read, no, four, six. We did 318. Here's another, how we glorify Christ. This is His prayer. For it is God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who is shown in our hearts. Okay, that's why we're saved. That's how we're saved. Okay? Now, why we're saved? Why is this? What does it say? To give the light of the knowledge and the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Similar, we are light bearers. 
we have been saved. And the purpose, how we glorify Christ, we're light bearers. And it tells us in, 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 uh, in, in Matthew 5, I believe it's uh, 12, 13, somewhere in there, we are to be salt and light. We're not to hide our light under a bushel, but we're to let it diffuse out and we reflect the glory of God. And so we see that we are light bearers. Look at verse 14. Look at verse 14. Same chapter, 14, verse 4, uh, 2 Corinthians 4, 14, knowing that He who raised up the dead will raise us up with Jesus and will present us with you. So part of our work as our glory is to tell people of the resurrection and to hope in the resurrection as we are light bearers. One of the things we do is to talk about the blessed hope of the resurrection. Look at verse 17. I love this verse. And I would, and I quote this verse to my head a lot of times. When I'm laying in the bed with a kidney stone and I think I'm dying, I quote this verse to myself all the time. This is a light affliction. And it's but for a moment, although it seems like 75 days, is working for me a far more exceeding weight of glory. Well, I don't look at the things which are seen, but the things that are not seen, but the things that are seen are temporary, but the things that are not seen are permanent, right? Perspective in suffering. We'd have a perspective in suffering. And the, the, the perspective in suffering is that it is temporary, God limits it. He may or may not. He may make it endure for a long time. But it is purposeful. And we're to grab a hold of that. And it causes us to have a different perspective. That is purposeful. And it is working an eternal weight of glory. And one of the roles we have and the task we have is to live well. To suffer well to comfort others while we suffer and have a perspective when we suffer. Time, I, I'm, I'm always late. 518, task, glorifying God. Now all things are of God who has reconciled us to Himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. What is that? And then it says in verse 20 that we are ambassadors for Christ. So this glory that He had on earth, and He did it perfectly. He called to draw men to Himself and to His Father to reconcile them to God. And He was a representative of His Father while He was on the earth as a human and as God. And so we are to be ministers of reconciliation and we are to be ambassadors for Christ. And what are some uh, synonyms for what I just said? What are we supposed to do that glorifies God in the task we have? What, is, what does this mean? What are some words, in case you're not familiar with those? What does an ambassador do? He represents. We're to represent Christ well. And that is the glory we've been given. It's a, it's a it's a spectacular task we've been given. What a privilege and a pleasure it is to represent Christ well. I see our 
counseling is, is a simple part of that to, to reconcile problems that people have in Christ. Excellent. When you point men to God and when you tell them that they must be reconciled to God and when you tell them why they must be reconciled to God, you are a minister of reconciliation. And you are pointing them to the Father. He's the only one who needs to be reconciled to and He's ordained the means that we can be reconciled to Him, His Son. That's why He sent Him. We're ministers of reconciliation. We're ambassadors for Him. In 910, uh, I'm not going to spend any more on this one, but it's in the category of being cheerful givers and being generous because of the abundance we know that God's a giver of everything. But look at uh, 910. He who supplies seed to the sower, that's Jesus. The seed is the Word of God, this task of glorifying Him for bread, for food, supply and multiply the seed you have sown and increases the fruits of your righteousness. One of the privileges, the glories that that, uh, He prays that we have is to bear fruits in the righteousness. Bear fruit into righteousness. Remember what we talked about in, in John chapter 15? Father is glorified when we bear much fruit. That is not just converts. We don't convert anybody. That's not successful evangelism. Just it's part of it. But when it's in our character and it is when our who we are inside our that we're loving and joyful and peaceful and gentle and we are and we are loving and we're kind and we're filled with self-control and we are faithful people. That is a way we glorify Him when we reflect how He's changed us and we He reflects the new character He's created in us. That glorifies Him. There are many other verses. I was uh, as I was meditating this morning early. Uh, and one of the fruits of this is, uh, look at uh, Psalm 40. Uh, just think about this. and uh, uh, Psalm 40. I get very emotional when I read this one. Psalm 40, 2 and 3. And uh, look at this. He brought me up out of a horrible pit, out of the miry clay... And He set my feet upon Himself, the rock. He's put a new song in my mouth. And that song is praise to God. Many will see it and fear and will trust in the Lord. Okay? That's how we fulfill this prayer. The glory I've given them. We understand how He's taken us out of the miry rock, miry pit. We understand who we were before Him and what we were before Him. And He has taken us and He's placed them, us upon Himself, the rock. And the result of that is we give glory to Him and we praise Him and many see it and they praise Him too. That is what it means when He prays the glory I've given them. This privilege to speak out what He's done for us. The problem is most people don't understand that they've come out of a horrible pit. And they've come out of miry clay. 
May He reveal that to all of us, right? Wow. Sort of a halfway attempt to explain this. I hope you it's helped you a bit. Uh, he prays three things in this prayer. Uh, and I just want to camp out, uh, finish this on this thought. And uh, I thought I was going to finish this, but uh, I didn't. But it'll keep, it'll keep. Look at the, he prays for three things. He prays that they may be one. So he's, in this, on this oneness, he prays that uh, we may be one. We've talked about that in purpose. We've talked about this in, in, uh, in our task. So we may be one. We're also one. Uh, I want to put these up here. We're one in purpose. I've talked about that. We also, Scripture tells us when we're regenerated, we have the mind of Christ. Not fully. But what does it mean when we are one in purpose and we are one, we have the same mind? What does that mean to have the mind of Christ? What does that mean? You have the mind of Christ. Pardon me? In our devotion... Because Christ always lived to please the Father. Everything He did was for the glory of the Father. He never took any any recognition of His own. He never took any credit on His own. He said, everything I do, the Father sent me. I came to do His will. I came to do His will. I came to serve His purposes. And so we as His followers, as He is our example in our head... Our mind should be, we want to please our Savior. We want to think like Him. We want to act like Him. We want to be like Him. That's be our mindset, to be humble before Him. And that is the process we're all going through. And eventually, when He changes us and we have new bodies, we will have reached that ultimate glorification. The mind of Christ. What else? We may be one in purpose. Uh, we may be one in fellowship. That's the word koinonia we've talked about before. We have this commonness. The commonness is who we are in Christ. Who we are as brothers and sisters. We're a body. We're a temple. We're built up in Him. He's our head. And so we have this fellowship. We have the same mission. And we've talked about that in great detail. That's what it means to be one. We should have the same will. And we should have the same desires that Christ did. Not my will be done, but thou will be done. So we submit to His Lordship. So that is what it means when He prays that we be one. So He prays that we're going to be one. And then He prays, the second thing He says as is... That they may be one as you, Father, in me, and I in you, that they may be one in us. In the original, there's not a, a one there. It just says that they may be in us. Does that make your head explode? He prays that we believers who will come to Him, 
It says, point number two, we may be one, but then he says, we may be, that we may be in us, in the, in the Godhead. How do you explain that? How can finite men understand that? That Jesus would pray, not one in us, that word one is not in, that Jesus says that they may be in us. Mutual indwellings. The Father, as the Son is in this Father, the, the Godhead is in us. Can we comprehend that? Jesus prayed that they may be in us. In, in unity, in conformity, we are in them. We are in the Godhead. Not that we're ever going to be God. We're not teaching that. But we are one in will and purpose and devotion and mind and heart and desires. And we know whose we are, whom we've been bought by. We may be in us. Yes. Absolutely part of the component. Yes, we'd be wise and understanding. Absolutely. Anything that's positive, any fruit born is a is an evidence of this prayer being answered that we are in them. I even that's hard to say. To comprehend that that Jesus would pray that we believers would be in the Godhead. Plural. One God, three persons. Absolutely. Talk about hope and assurance, steadfast anchor for the soul. It's not a wish. It's a, it's a, it's a foreordained fact that this is going to be accomplished, right? Just like he is foreordained that we do works, we're going to do those works. And then, lastly, he prays, "Why?" This is sub. It's subsequential. The second depends on the first, and the third depends on the second and the first. So the last thing he prays is that the world may believe. He says he prays that the world may believe. Believe what? That thou hast sent me, that, that the Father has sent the Son. And so, the third depends on that we are in Christ and the Godhead, that we are one in purpose and mind and devotion and fellowship and will and mission. And through that unity, through that love, the world believes the Father's sin. Now, that may not be a saving faith. It may be an intellectual understanding. And not all men are saved when they see that. We're not talking about universalism, that all men are saved. But it is an evidence, right? And it is a it is a fiery coal placed on them. And it renders them inexcusable, right? When they see the world, and they see the body of Christ joined together, they see us and they know that the truth, what the Word says, and there is validity to the gospel truth, okay? Time is up. I'm going to finish this, bring this next week, and we'll look at the glorious truth that, that we may be where He is in glory forever. Future, present, we're going to talk a little about unity, and then we're going to talk about mutual love, and then uh, 
We'll go from there. Comments or questions?